Welcome everyone to Link to the Cast, episode 150, your weekly dose of video games and nerd culture ephemera, available everywhere all good podcasters sold, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many more. I'm your party host, Dave Ryan, and I'm joined on the line by the usual rogues gallery. First, we have the platforming prodigy, Mark Robinson. Mark, 150 episodes strong. Did you ever think you'd see the day? Um, I Well, I was worried we were going to be... Um held back for a few episodes because my macbook was on its last legs but uh due to uh getting a new job uh they were so kind of kindly enough uh giving me a new macbook so ah the um, mac is back return of the mac the return of the mac is back and uh my god this thing is so beautiful and sleek and shiny and missing usb ports and hdmi ports and just (laughs) Look yeah. at the things it doesn't have. Yeah, I know, right? Thankfully, it has a fucking jackpot for my headphones. But uh, yeah, it's it works like a dream. It's uh, getting these podcasts edited together is going to be so much more uh, of a convenience. But so, yeah, I'm in a very good mood. I started my new job on Monday and life is good. Also, I'm joined on the line by a little bit of the bubbly, Jack Lazell. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, Jack? What's uh, going on this week? <laughs> Uh, no, not much, mate. Not much. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Like I couldn't hear you over the vibrations of my phone. <laughs> All right, Dave. Let's just clarify now. What is more ridiculous, this or Jack and his fucking John Terry bet that got him uh, on the newspaper? Well, right. it's this way, right? Jack, who and I mean this with the greatest respect, because we we are two men cut from the same cloth. We don't need. Uh, that many icebreakers in social situations given that we are very verbose loquacious men but jack now has in his back pocket the two greatest icebreaking anecdotes i have ever heard <laughs> i actually have quite a few more than that but uh <laughs> like i'm des- i'm desperate for a new one because oh yeah i spent six months in china is getting old really fast now uh so yeah please jack give me something new to work with um so i'm in a group chat uh, with with Dave and friend of the show Ian C and and uh, it's it's the it's nominally supposed to be the popcorn social group chat because we were trying to get Ian on an episode but it's just rapidly devolved into <laughs> us just talking about movies and not recording anything. Yeah, it's just rapidly evolved into me liking a movie, Ian thinking it's not that great, Ian liking a movie, me thinking it wasn't that great, and then Dave just staring the pot between the two of us. Yeah, uh, but yeah, um, so. I, was it Barry? I mean, the Chris Jericho cutting a promo after the AEW show, uh, walking over to Champagne and saying, "Ah, oh, a little bit of the bubbly," uh, <laughs> which <laughs> are still like it's been seventy-two hours. <laughs> <laughs> Why does he say it like? <laughs> there's no, there's no, there's no logical reason. <laughs> Because he's so like flat up until that point where he's <laughs> chastising everybody for not appreciating him, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> after talking about salami for about a minute and a half, he just erupts. <laughs> he's like, "Oh, a little bit of the problem. and you're just like, "Yeah." It's he like I, I didn't know if he was trying to go for an English accent, and like, do you remember? Um... The, the Bill Hicks sketch where he's pretending to be in um, Judas Priest and uh, he's talking about um, trying to kill like all of the fans and whatnot. He's doing the English accent. I kind of had that in the back of my mind, but it's so much more fucking ridiculous because, I mean, for a start, it's Chris Jericho and he is that much more ridiculous. 
that it's like is he is he trying to do like a parody of like being in a British rock band that's like looking at all of the like food and and uh, drinks and whatnot backstage? I just or did he just in that moment was like I don't know I, I this is the accent I have and this is what I'm going with. I, it's it, it's, yeah. master, it, it's a masterpiece. It's the least impressive rider you've ever seen. In fact, if it wasn't for that little bit of the bubbly on the table, it was just not non-pitted olives, small circles of salami. That, that appears to be like, it was like from a, a Costco or something. Like, Jack, we've had more impressive riders. Uh, we we genuinely have. Like, I mean, one one used to play at the half of Marquee and they'd just be like, yeah, here's 24 cans of, of Fosters. And you kind of like, there's four of us, and you're like, well, thanks, that's ruined our entire show, then, because I have to drink at least three cans before I go on stage, why wouldn't Um Anyway, took that, and Ian made a me- meme where it was a little, bit, a little bit conversation, a little bit of the bubbly. I was like, that's pretty funny. I like that. And it, he was quite proud of himself, getting a few likes and some retweets on the old Twitter. So I said to him... Uh, Oh yeah, has anyone done Mambo number five yet? Because I don't know why, but it just popped in my head. Like, and he went, oh, "I don't, don't think so." And I'm like, oh, "Okay." He's like, "Maybe you should do it." I'm like, "How?" <laughs> Bit like Homer's brain, where it's like, "Explain how money can be exchanged for goods and services," and he's like, "Clips can be taken from the internet and repurposed." So then I opened iMovie, which yeah, I Ian, Ian was essentially explaining memes to Jack in the chat. <laughs> <laughs> I knew, I knew I knew what memes are like I just I just I was like I don't know how I'm gonna make this and then he made it seem really easy and then I did it and obviously I edit audio well, I used to edit a lot of audio all the time so video is the same thing really um so I, I mashed the clip up put it up posted it said to him oh lads I'm dying got a good reaction from Dave I'd say within about two minutes I had about five ten retweets and a few likes just from people that were on my feed. And then somehow, <laughs> Joey Janela, otherwise known as the bad boy uh, of wrestling, retweeted it. And then a spike, guys, a massive spike in the likes and retweets that started getting into the 50s, 60s. Uh, and then Chris Jericho from that himself said that it was uh, best tweet ever or something along those lines. Retweeted it to a his... little bit of bubbly. Hashtag a little bit of bubbly retweeted it to his three million followers and i'm not joking my phone has not stopped telling me of notifications since uh, and this was just over 24 hours ago just over 24 hours ago it it's it's quite insane and it's not something that like i've gone out of my way to try and be like viral or any of that stuff like i could not care less most of the things i tweet about are encouragement for my football team <laughs> and i don't often tweet about a lot of other stuff but yeah um i was going into meetings earlier and just leaving my phone on the table just to pop people at work when there was like notification after notification after notification just kept popping up and they're like seriously what the fuck is going on but yeah, yeah. the absolute disgrace of all of this is because i checked your account and i was looking at the tweets and whatnot is yet you still only have under 200 followers and that is that is disgraceful, not because you had that, but like no one saw that and was like, okay, I have to follow this account because it's good content. I did get so, okay, 
are you ready for the uh, statistics from Twitter on this? Please do. So current impressions are, which is the times that people saw the tweet, uh, is 627,259. <laughs> current views of the actual video, 457,600. And Total. only about 150,000 are me putting it on a loop since. <laughs> <laughs> Times people interacted with this tweet across me or Chris Jericho or someone else, 170,000. <laughs> That's quite funny. <laughs> I'm just happy we have this because like, the video games industry has been awful this week, so I'm glad we can at least uh, start off on a, on a, on a good note. Um, but yeah, guys. While while we've been talking about it, I've I've had seventeen notifications. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even joking. <laughs> oh, there's another one, and there's uh, like it, it, it. You think it would stop? Like it hasn't really. I mean, it slows down. Effects. But it's 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 a stream of notifications. I think it's going to last a week. Anyway, uh, well, yeah, I guess it depends on like which uh, wrestlers. Go. When you, the Rock ends up retweeting it, you know, like you can't get any he's, higher than that. He's already had like um, Jericho, obviously, uh, Will Ospreay, the official Progress account. So you know, swings and roundabouts, I guess. Um, and I've seen at least two different people, Jericho and uh, Alice Cooper's guitarist, Nita Strauss, Instagram storying about it. Bizarre. So this, M- ha- this has legs, it's safe to say. Yeah, Joey Janela, MK McKinnon. Um, every now and then I'm just scrolling through just the people that have liked it. And I just see like somebody with like, you know, a hundred thousand followers or something. And it might be a wrestler or some like rugby league guy retweeted it. And I was like, the fuck? <laughs> I don't even know who you are, homeboy, but you got a lot of followers. Like, it, it's just crazy. Like, yeah. Uh, what about know. you, Dave? How are you? Made any banging yeah. tweets this week? I, the, none that banged quite as much. Um, that's for sure. Haven't really done a lot this week. And it feels like everything we say is going to pale in fucking comparison now. Yeah, should we just um, get on to games? Because, like, there's just. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just call the audible, mate. We're just going to look like chumps now. So, uh, <laughs> playing this week. Hey, check it out. I learned the baseline from Final Fantasy 2. Scott, you are the salt of the earth. Oh, thanks. I meant scum of the earth. Thanks. Mark, what have you been playing this week? Uh, I got round to starting Devil May Cry 5, uh, finally, because I figured that's a game that probably will get discussed at the end of the year uh, and that's how i value the games i need to play by <laughs> what ones do i know will be discussed at the end of the year yeah um, at, at this time of year especially like it's a matter of kind of triaging what you need to get to yeah and i feel like that list is just bumped up dramatically from last week and will only expand over the next couple of weeks with the uh the schedule the the lineup of games coming yeah. out well Madden's about to come out. You know what that means. Busy season starting. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Uh, so, Devil May Cry 5. I know you spoke about the game when it came out. Jack, I can't remember if you've played DMC 5 or not. No, I'm not a huge Devil May Cry okay. fan, as uh, as I said to Dave at the time. Right, cool. Which may be sacrilege to a lot of people. Uh, to I'm some sorry. people, but, you know, they're bastards, so it's fine. Um, so, DMC 5... <laughs> Knowing what you think of this game in advance, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> DMC5 is okay. 
Uh, I'm not going to come here and I'm not going to say it's a bad game because, um, I mean, for a start, like, and I am the, the platforming prodigy, but one of my other favorite genres of games is the, the hack and slash. Uh, I fucking adore Bayonetta. Uh, I, I love the original Devil May Cry. We've done it as a book club feature in this show. Um, I feel like a lot of this of what I'm doing is I'm comparing it to DMC Devil May Cry, which I honestly think at this point, other than the original, has become my favorite DMC in, in the, I guess, series, even though it's a reboot and it's kind of its own weird offshoot, non-canon uh, game. Um, so comparing it to that, and it definitely does feel like Capcom have have done all they can to kind of retcon that that ever happened, and but still taking elements of that game, I guess. Um, but one of the things I realized is a like Nero is just not a particularly likable character. Um, they have this new guy called V who like for all intents and purposes is I, I've got like an idea of kind of Vili Velo in my head, but like even less enjoyable to think about as a concept. Um, but with a real kind of heightened sense of he's this all important character who's like integral to the story. And really I think he was just created so fucking cosplayers would have something to uh, dress up for E3 next year or whatever, or whatever PAX event. Um, and it's all lumped into this story, which isn't, isn't, I mean, you know, Devil May Cry, you're not really playing for the story, but I even thought DMC Devil May Cry was at least doing something with talking about Dante and, uh, it was kind of like an origin story, I guess. And it was talking about, um, the, his upbringing and his parents, um, and then kind of throwing it into this, a, a very on the nose discussion about uh you know uh, media and you know very much like hey fox news is awful bill o'reilly is awful blah 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 it's very on the nose but i enjoyed it for what it was where this isn't really doing anything in, in providing any kind of commentary for anything not that it needs to it's definitely yeah, christ so but i'm not like, gonna argue yeah here's yeah. the thing like pe people play devil may cry for the story and they don't as well at the same time um like they 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 definitely play it because of the cool weird lore but they don't it's weird to say they don't expect it to be good and almost no, if it was not. good it would be bad yeah I, again it's not like the original Devil May Cry as much as I think that game is excellent and still holds yeah. up from a game in terms of its gameplay obviously in terms of the story there's not a lot yeah. going on I, so yeah I mean he has a slow motion gunfight in the nip where there's like a pizza covering his junk so it's well, not yeah yeah well, it's that's... not it's not the height of Shakespearean drama well I was on about the original Devil May Cry but yeah I mean like the thing I appreciate about DMC Devil May Cry and this is also an issue with, when it comes to naming games don't fucking call it the same thing regardless um I at least just appreciate that they took this idea and and bolted on at least an attempt to kind of have whatever commentary not that every game needs to do that and um i'm not saying that it kind of lessens my experience my enjoyment of, of dmc5 but it is something there that i'm thinking about in the background the other thing that i think is more um the the issue that i have with the game is i just don't find the combat anywhere near as compelling as what dmc democrat was doing um See, that's kind of where i disagree with you now but continue well uh, Part of it is that they have you going between uh, uh, Nero and V, 
who have two very different uh, styles of combat. And one of the things with a hack and slash type of game is you you know you're continuously building up your arsenal you continue continuously building up the um mechanics and um you know you're learning new uh attacks and whatever else and you're finding ways to incorporate that into um the combat and the chain of, of moves that you do but with this game it just it doesn't I just find I'm hammering like the the triangle button and playing this on PlayStation. I just feel like I'm hammering the triangle button and at a point the enemy in front of me has been killed and then sometimes I might uh, whip out the gun and fire some shots and I just I don't feel there's any kind of fluidity that I got from playing DMC Devil May Cry 5 and the way that it switches between your angel weapon and your devil weapon. I just feel there was a lot more fluid and, and there was a lot more um, there was a dynamic to the way that you could go between the two weapons and chain combos that I'm just not getting out of this game. Honestly, to me, I think it's a thing like, you know, there's the, the school of thought that um, Smash has no intricacy to it or whatever, and you can brute force it. I think it's that kind of a thing where it's not like it's forcing you down the corridor of nuance. You can kind of brute force a lot of things like you day by smashing the triangle here, there and everywhere. Um, but I, I think between the three characters and the different skill trees and things like that, that you use throughout the game, I do think there is an incredible diversity there. It just isn't kind of in the way we're sometimes used to now where circumstances in a game will dictate that you have to, the best example I can think of is say doom 2016, where, uh, different situations basically require you to bin one weapon in favor of another. Um, yeah, but the no, thing with that, the, the thing I'll say with that. There's nothing the lower to middle difficulties in DMC5 that is kind of absolutely forcing you out of your comfort zone. But I do think when you go up higher in the difficulties, I think I had it, I think I had it on like the highest that you got at the start, or maybe the second from highest you got at the start. And like, I was definitely having some fun and having some challenge that was requiring me to do different bits and pieces and, and rotate between weapons and skills and things like that. And the, the four fighting styles as well available to you on your D pad. So I definitely would push back on that. Personally. So the thing is like with doom though, you're only holding R2 uh, and you have whatever, yep. you know, special uh, bolt on added to the gun where with devil may cry, you've got a whole array of buttons to work with. And mm -hmm. like they do different things depending on which character you're playing as. So I feel it's a, it's a lot different going between characters in Devil May Cry than just picking a different gun and, and having a scenario that requires you to do a different thing. And the other thing with that as well is like you're forced to go between characters, uh, which forces you if you yeah, don't like I, I suppose. I suppose that is the one juncture in the game where it kind of goes, ah, you're getting comfortable with this, now you're going to have to try this sort of thing. So yeah, that is probably the one way it forces you out of your little rut. Yeah, like with Doom, you know, obviously if a pinky demon's coming towards you, you know, uh, like I'll usually go with the chain gun or maybe the shotgun. If you've got an imp, uh, you want something that's got a kind of big blast radius to deal with those fuckers. So, you know, the game not forces you, but definitely kind of encourages you, hey, you probably want to go with that weapon because that's better for this particular scenario. Uh, where Devil May Cry, Devil May Cry is a little bit different because it you know, it does kind of force you to play with other characters, and I just I don't know I I find that neither 
playing with uh, Nero or V. I should point out, by the way, I'm only halfway through the game so far. Um, ah. I've got up to the point where you get Dante back, but I haven't played with him yet, other than from, from where you played him at the start. Um, yeah. but... it, it kind of, uh, it's the most, I will say the Dante chapters are the most, it feels like, the, the old games. Yeah, which you know, I think it goes without saying. And I just feel, I think the other thing as well is Nero uh, really... I don't want to say they, they do kind of a riding job with him, but I wonder, like, the more games we get with him in, like, how many more limbs he's going to have cut off by the time we get to Devil May Cry Revengeance and he's got, like, an eyeball and uh, maybe, like, half a leg still. I mean, again, for the Devil May Cry lore, I'm all for that, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and I like some of the, like I said, one of the, the funniest, dumbest, coolest things in... Uh, in games in 2019 was as v being able to surf on a ghost panther into battle like he could do a lot worse yeah i i definitely do think that v has some cool like ideas like between using the the panther and uh that bird that really reminds me of uh uh zazu from uh, aladdin um no no what's the the fucking parrot's name from aladdin uh diago yeah diago that's it uh, really reminds me of Diago from uh, Aladdin. He he kind of reminded me of the the death of crows from the the Discworld books, um, but uh, yeah, like I that's one thing I really liked about V. I think the character is a bit wanky, but like, <laughs> you know, what can you? It's Devil May Cry. They're uh, not yeah, all gonna yeah. be fucking winners, you know. You throw some shit at the wall, you see what sticks. That's kind of what I love about it. Uh, but like aesthetically, just, it's pretty cool. Can I just character. get a general idea of this ghost panther? Just so I can picture uh, it. Yeah, sixty percent of the time it works every time. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to top that comeback. So, congrats. <laughs> um, yeah, basically, like, um, I, I I like the aesthetics of the character, and I think um, the fact that it kind of makes you think differently to all other battles in the game by the fact that it benefits you to stay as far away from the combat as possible as V and just let your, your animals do the talking and being able to summon the golem is really fucking cool as well. But I will say with that, as cool as that all is, I really don't feel like I'm doing a whole hell of a lot. And it kind of reminded me of uh, Nier Automata where I just kind of stand back and just spam my um, like projectile weapon because like certain enemies... It's not as bad as near because with near like most of the bosses you're kind of forced to do it because you get anywhere close and you get absolutely obliterated. But with here, um, you know, V and his actual own attack is like the weakest attack he has. So you just kind of stand back and let uh, your ghost panther and uh, bird of death do most of the, the attacks. And it's cool from as a visual, but in terms of like actual kind of engagement with the combat, you're just kind of mashing buttons. And, 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 and well, that is the genre, you know, if you want to be reductive. Not necessarily, you know. though. Not necessarily. Like I said, there's reasons why I find like Bayonetta and DMC Devil May Cry so engaging because, yeah, you can mash the buttons, but like a, you know, like a, a, a fighting game, you can mash the buttons, but you. Know, you there's a difference between someone who can bash the buttons and someone who kind of knows what they're doing with the combat. Well, yeah, that, that's what I'm saying as well. And you do get there with, with the, um, like in any Devil May Cry game, the things you unlock throughout the game. And I think by the time you get to the the, the last throws of the game, you may come around a little on that or at least not feel as strongly as you do right now, I would think. Uh, I Possibly. wouldn't be entirely I... sure because we don't always, uh, as, as evidenced by the game I'm about to talk about, we're not always... Um, 
we're not always completely eye to eye on games we think we might be on the outside of it um but one thing i will say i suppose it you know not to defend it or anything like that but one thing i suppose you could say to be a devil's advocate on it is that at least hey devil's advocate um is that you know at worst at least um if you're not feeling v or you're not feeling nero at least you can go well i'm only going to be with him for one chapter and then i'm moving on to somebody else and it gets even better because once you get Dante and once you start unlocking stuff with Dante, that's the stuff that rips like the original Devil May Cry trilogy. Like he is just like beefy and cool as fuck. And I think his devil trigger is awesome. And, and like, yeah, it's it's good fun. Um, but I'd be interested to see your, your final thoughts by the time you're done with it. Yeah. Um, and I will say the one other thing as well, and this is um, something that goes across all the Devil May Cry games. And it was understandable with the original and the PS2 games, um, you know, invisible walls or, you know, uh, having a, a wall that you can come up to and you can't really interact with it. And you just, again, there's the invisible wall around this geometry that isn't f- like a flat surface. Um, I can understand that for the PS2, but really in 2019, um, just there are areas where, like, I can see that this is going to be an invisible wall and I go up to it and yeah, it is. And it just, it, it looks really unfinished and it looks really cheap. And um, I just, I don't really think there's much excuse for that in, in 2019. But that's kind of like a a trope almost of the, the DMC series at this point. So Yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah, at the same time, if you went in and it was like this incredibly uh, detailed and spacious open world, you'd be like, what the fuck is this? So, yeah, and it's, it's I don't know, um, I guess... I, I guess I could, should really go back and maybe um, play DMC Devil May Cry and probably the original Devil May Cry again and see what I feel of them now in 2019. Well, you can get that original one on Switch now. It is for 20 quid. I might uh, just do that. So, yeah, that's uh, that's my fault so far on, on mm. DMC 5. Uh, Jack, before I go off on one uh, about what I've been playing, what have you been playing lately? So I downloaded the Final Fantasy VIII remaster but there's really not an awful lot of point in me talking about that because we're gonna talk about final fantasy 8 at some point in the next couple of episodes but i will just say that i'm not very far into it but it's my favorite game and it's like putting on a nice cozy old pair of shoes and just taking a a walk around your favorite part of town and i'm loving it how does it seem so far like a good port yeah i mean it's it's the game uh, it's it's upresed ever so slightly. It looks a bit nicer, a bit cleaner. The FMVs look decent. Yeah, it's it, it. There's not a huge amount of change from from my perspective. Um, the the one complaint I've seen is that it's not full screen. Yeah, it's not. It's kind of. Is it four three? Yeah, I think it's mainly to stop it from being stretched and looking yeah. kind of ugly or whatever because even like the opening cutscene of the game and stuff is a bit mm, when you when you first load it so i think if you stretched it out it would probably pixelate a little bit and it, it seems bizarre that you can't say fill the screen yourself if you want to and maybe they patch that in at some point but it's the game you know the fact that i've got my my favorite game ever in a portable format that i can take around uh is you, is making me happy yeah you're me three weeks ago with doom <laughs> exactly mate and, and you got on and started playing some doom and i've gone and started playing some final fantasy 8 so yeah, yeah. by Just, the way uh, can, can, can i say at this point not to cut into your time here 
Um, but uh, episode four of Doom one, I had forgotten that that whole episode can just eat my ass. It's <laughs> fuck. That. I'm playing it on the middling difficulty, and I've nearly pitched the switch out my window a few times. Oh dear. And like wow. I was saying, I think I text Mark that one night. I was just like, people forget that original Doom is real fucking difficult. I'm not surprised. There was no such thing as kind of like difficulty curves or anything back then. You just made no, the game and it was wall. how it was. <laughs> yeah, 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 it just it just is how it is. Like whatever the the manic designers of the game decided to leave you with. Uh, um, yeah. Um, so cool, yeah, we'll hear more of your, your Final Fantasy VIII thoughts in due course as we embark upon Final Fantasy Month here at, uh, at Link to the Cast. Uh, I'd just like to emphasize a lot more of my Final Fantasy VIII thoughts. I've got so many things to this say. Is just, this is just Lazelle Month. Like. <laughs> it is, it is. I'm, guys, am I dying? <laughs> no, <it's laughs> make a wish. Yeah, yeah, we're not John Cena, no. There's, uh, it's 20th anniversary Final Fantasy VIII. It, it made sense. And we've done 150 episodes of this, and we've done about 10 Mario games and one Final Fantasy game up till this point or up till this episode. So, yeah, proper sense. order. Yeah, well. <laughs> and, I was, and I was absolutely fuming that I wasn't involved for that. Uh, well, look, when, when, when McGee picks up the phone, you answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> you have a choice or not. Um, so uh, before we get into the news I'll talk about what I've been playing because I'm having a whale of a time with this game I am playing Control Control. which is the new Remedy game Remedy best known for Alan Wake the first two Max Payne games and most recently Quantum Break which I think we can call a mixed success at best um, on Xbox One so um what I will say, big kind of, uh, there's going to be no spoilers. Uh, at least I'm going to make, at least I'm going to endeavor to try my best to make sure there's no spoilers. Um, but what I will say right up top, your headline statement is, if you don't like Remedy games already, this is probably not for you. And uh, I, I said when I, I said in the group chat that we have with our friend, friend of the show, Matt Niner, that um, I'm not sure if this is going to be a Mark Robinson game TM because and again i could be wrong mark has surprised me before but there's i i don't feel like it will necessarily be for him because this game is not all style and no substance but definitely the thing that sets it apart for me is the style the world the story the weirdness um it's essentially um if david lynch directed a conspiracy a government conspiracy movie or like if david lynch directed a season of the x-files or some shit like that um you essentially you played this this girl called jesse who as the game opens up uh happens upon this uh department of control um which seems to be a, a shady government facility that has uh, some sort of uh, responsibility over uh, events that take place in the world that distort or snap reality. 
um and they are kind of the the men in black that come out and kind of cover things up and then you never see them again and the the show opens on her finally finding the actual building that department of control is in this place called i think it's the oldest house um where the department is and it's kind of it reminds me very much of the order of the phoenix from harry potter in as much as the shtick about the building is you can't find it unless you already know where it is um jesse has uh, a couple of secrets that you learn very quickly early on in the game one being that she has some sort of connection to what is called the astral plane there is some sort of consciousness that shares space in her head uh, that she refers to as polaris and it was because of polaris that she was able to find this building and the other thing is that the department had something to do with an incident that took place in her hometown and her brother's disappearance so that's why she's trying to find the building she comes into the building to find that it's on lockdown and shit has gone very very direly awry um and she goes to talk to the director of the department who while she is in the process of going to talk to him kills himself and she takes his service weapon from his body and then is informed that she is the new director and as part of the kind of weird lynchian elements to this game everybody in the building is acting like they were already no they already knew she was coming and was going to be the new director um this game is really well designed at making you feel at least marginally uncomfortable uh, when you're not uh, in the thick of battle. Um, and what I mean by that is, firstly, the art direction of the game is absolutely beautiful. I will, It will be hard for me to find a better directed game for the rest of the year uh, in its use of its, its uh, kind of like title cards when you go in between different areas, its use of bold colors, its use of full motion video, uh, at various points um there are sometimes where you come across like film reels of um test subjects and things like that and some of them are filmed in fmv and projected into the game um there after the director kills himself and you become the new director and you take his service weapon you may have seen the original trailer for this where it seems like the weapon is talking or humming or hissing um through this service weapon this weird kind of distorting gun that is like distorting as you're holding it and um, the director is able to communicate with you from the astral plane and in some of the coolest shit i have seen in a video game this year when he communicates with you uh you'll just be walking along in a corridor and all of a sudden you will see like a superimposed silhouette over your game screen of him smoking his cigar and speaking to you in in kind of almost in tongues and then superimposed behind that you'll have seen the all the the signage for the game features this like ominous black triangle inverted pyramid and that will also be superimposed on top of that again. Um, so like really cool, really stylish game, really trippy as fuck. Like I said, it makes you feel really uncomfortable. Um, there will be things where you have a really awkward encounter with a janitor. You walk down a corridor, the teams only lead to one place. You have a really awkward encounter with a janitor um, and you're talking to him. And in the course of that cutscene, something happens where the geography of the room changes very slightly. And you walk back exactly where you came, but it leads somewhere else. And the game never tells you it's done that. It does very subtle things like that, where it turns you around or changes things that you know that wasn't there. 
that wasn't the way it was. Something is happening here. What's going on? It leaves you on edge constantly. There are some really clever puzzles in this game that feel like something out of a fucking Twilight Zone episode. Um, the the combat mechanics, because of course it's Remedy games, so there's got to be some like cover shooting and stuff like that involved. Um, the kind of the loadout for the service weapon, which you can basically, I think it's there's four different variations of the service weapon you can have, where one is just this kind of pistol, uh, there's one that's kind of a blast, one that's sort of like a hook shot, and I can't remember what the fourth one is now, I think it's like a revolver. Um, and there's like so many different variations on how you can upgrade those throughout the game. Uh, and then instead of like just covering behind walls or whatever you get, because obviously you've got Polaris and you interact with these things, uh, this is going to be a very obscure TV reference, but have either of you ever seen a mini series called The Lost Room? No. Okay, it's really good. It's a Peter Krause. It's like six episodes long, and it's based on an Outer Limit episode where a guy discovers that there are these items that are imbued with very bizarre powers, and all these items came from one hotel room in a desert somewhere. It's a really weird concept, but it's a surprisingly good show. But anyway, there are these really generic inanimate objects in the world in this game that appear to be imbued with these sorts of powers, and you go to these objects, or you go to control points, which are kind of like your checkpoints, and you cleanse them using Polaris's power. But when you cleanse some of these objects uh they unlock powers for you um there's like a levitation power there's a shield power there's a kind of telekinesis power um and they're really cool and it makes you feel like it it kind of it it adds a lot to the game in as much as kind of unlike i think those infamous games where as your powers layer in you feel overpowered you feel a nice rush of power and like this is cool I, I feel deadly but the as the game goes on the the difficulty ratchets up at a kind of pretty much parallel in a parallel way where you never feel like you're just absolutely blasting through the game at any point um i really like it i don't think like it's not going to be the because it's third person over the shoulder it's not going to be the tightest shooting in the world or anything like that but once you make that allowance um i i think there's a lot of fun to be have had uh the two things i would say against it uh would be apparently on vanilla ps4s at least at launch and vanilla xbox ones it was not doing great performance wise it was having a lot of hitches i have a ps4 pro so I haven't noticed any of that. It runs like a fucking dream. Um, I think it might have been patched. I saw Barry talking about it on Twitter today that he thinks it might have been because he's waiting to pull the trigger on the game. Um, so there's that. And the, the other thing I will say at some point, I think the control points or the checkpoints for the game, uh, the space in between them can be a little punishing sometimes. There have been a couple of occasions where... I have died and the last time I, I hit a checkpoint was so long beforehand that I'm 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 having to slog back through a good five minutes of encounter that I have done before. Now only on a couple of occasions has it been proper frustratingly long time. Like sometimes it's literally just about 30 20, 30 seconds. I just sprint through to get where I was originally, but it can be a little bit frustrating at times, especially when you get to more difficult parts of the game and you've literally just squeaked past uh, uh, a combat challenge or whatever. Um, yeah. Danny, you want to know anything about that? Anything else about that game? I feel like I've kind of hit on most of the stuff I thought about it. I just want to know um, 
because there's a lot of it that gave me a worrying kind of David Cage alter sort of vibe to it. Um, nah. I, yeah, I just want to know. As long <laughs> as that's not there, I'll give this yeah. a look. Yeah, no, it's cool. It, it's better than that. It's not overreaching uh, in terms of this is my message about civil rights or anything like that. Um, I don't think it's ham-fisted or badly acted in any way like that. Um, and I think it strikes the right balance between taking itself seriously in serious moments and then things like, so like the different files you pick up around to read, like your your equivalent of voxophones or diary entries or audio logs that you get in it. Uh, they ride a line of comedy sometimes that are absolutely brilliant and kind of take the piss out of the concept of like the secret government institute that I really enjoy, but doesn't break the suspension of disbelief of a, an otherwise quite serious story. Um, there are entire bits that are like, you know, you're reading this this detail about how... Um, oh, we're going to unveil this bit of information and then the entire rest of the file is completely redacted. You know, just stuff, good kind of, you know, con- if, if you're into conspiracy sci-fi stuff, uh, a couple of good jokes in there, uh, here and there. But yeah, that, that's Control. I really like it. Um, I think compared to Devil May Cry 5, which I think is going to fall out my game of the year and kind of unfortunately be stuck in that mire between uh, the Ham Sandwich Award and Game of the Year where it's not good and it's not bad enough for one and not good enough for the either for the other. Um, I think this will almost certainly feature in my top 10 of the year. Um, how high it goes, I'm not so sure. So yeah, that's Control. Uh, my thoughts on it so far. I haven't quite finished it yet, um, but I'll give my final thoughts maybe next week because I, I think I'm approaching uh, the end period of that game now. Um, let's move on and talk about the news. News on the mark. Fuck, we got a real heavy one to start the show this week um, as uh, a whole shitstorm emerged over the last seven to ten days um, that culminated in the death by suicide of Night in the Woods co-creator uh, Alec Holoka. Uh, I think it's pronounced, is it? Um, yeah, Holofka. it's probably Holofka because it's a Polish name. But oh, Holofka, yeah, possibly. Um, so yeah, where the fuck do you start with this one? Um, so essentially, um, what started happening uh, early to mid last week, as we were recording this, uh, was that several figures within uh, game development were being outed or I believe the the phrase the young kids are using nowadays are being me tooed uh, outed for various levels of sexual misconduct assault um this kind of thing and Alec was one of the first couple of names uh, that came out somebody that was a previous co-worker of his um was the first of many to come forward. Uh, I think there was, you know, uh, the guts of half a dozen women by the end uh, who came forward about it. The the tweet were the tweet of the original uh, kind of claims and accusations against him was then signal boosted and echoed by by Zoe Quinn, who herself had her own, uh, shall we say, run-ins with Alec uh, over the years. We don't really need to get into what are very well-documented stories of abuse going around um, in the last week. Um, Essentially, what this led to was um, the... the, What's the name of the Night in the Woods developer, the studio, Mark? 
Um, oh, Jesus. But essentially, they, they parted ways with, with Alec um, following a very, or following or in the wake of uh, announcing a very brief investigation into these... Um, into these these stories in which uh, notedly uh, a lot of his co-workers both men and women were essentially saying yeah this is pretty much you know a very badly kept secret we all know this is uh, you know and not just the usual level of you believe women you believe victims but kind of like yeah we've all had stories about this guy that are very similar to the ones being to- being given by the women who are his victims Um, and what this ended up resulting in was on Saturday Alex's sister took to Twitter to explain that he had in fact died by suicide Um this is a really tough one to kind of like comment on. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not something that I think we need to spend a lot of time talking about, but uh, as with anything with this kind of thing and and considering, um, you know, there is a a portion of the internet and the gaming sphere that are not exactly the biggest fans of Zoe Quinn. Um, You know, when you think back to the origins of Gamergate, she is a large part portion of why Gamergate exists. Yeah. Um, she, uh, her and Brianna in, Wu would be the two names. Yeah, uh, not obviously the very first day who were like public enemies number one and two. Yeah, and obviously not her choice to uh, to have inadvertently started that, but uh, that's just what happened. And uh, the idea that people who just look for anything they can add uh, to to continue their just fucking crusade against this woman. Yeah. This is like what? fucking like grade A material of okay, here's a woman who's claiming sexual harassment and what's happened is this guy has gone and killed himself. And uh, regardless of who comes out, even if it's family members saying that um, everything that has been claimed is is more or less true and uh, Please don't, you know, I think it was within even, her, her... Even the sister had passed on in her message that essentially, like, you know, she came as close as a loving sister could to saying that she knew he did it and he had even kind of wished the best for, for Zoe and, and his victims that, you know, one situation doesn't negate the other in, in as much as the fact that he was clearly in the wake of all this, we we hear that he was severely mentally ill and in treatment and had made serious strides and imp- to improve over the last several years doesn't negate the stories of abuse. It doesn't invalidate what, what happened there, nor, you know, can you um, do the reverse and kind of say that the situation of him committing suicide and being a mentally ill person is negated by the it's it's two horrible situations that are completely intertwined with each other yeah and like i was reading responses and i really should get out of the habit of doing this but i was reading you really should i know i was reading responses to uh, his sister's uh, message and there was all the usual sorts of oh you can take legal action and um i'm you know, Zoe Quinn, what an awful person, you know, this person's committed suicide because of this. And I mean, I can't speak for Zoe Quinn. I would imagine that even regardless of what abuse was thrown at her um, by uh, Alec, 
I can't imagine in any kind of wildest dreams that she would have uh, wished, you know, a person to kill themselves because of yeah. this. The, the thing so, that, like, yeah. among the things that I have my trouble uh, getting my head around these, the, the logic that these gamergators have is just that, like, even if you want to play Extreme Devil's Advocate and say the first time around when she inadvertently, as you say, started Gamergate with her, uh, the situation with Depression Quest and her, her ex-boyfriend, which we do not need to get into over half a decade. I can't believe over half a decade later, we're still fucking talking about this story. But um, even if you want to say that, like, she is the person they say that, that she is, that she was doing it the first time around for attention, you would think that even if we, we go along with that ridiculousness, that why would she do it again you know what i mean like I she got a half decade of the most horrendous abuse had to move house and all sorts of shit because of these people like who the fuck would do that twice if that was the case you know um but she has had to because again they have been trying to destroy this woman since the start of gamergate um yeah. and and alex's sister made it pretty cool clear she's like just do not use our grief uh, as an excuse to harass other people but even the dude who killed himself didn't want her blamed for it yeah. you know but uh, you know that's that's what these people are like so yeah. as, um, as i said to, to jack because jack you and i were talking about this and you're like why the fuck would they be doing this and i was just like they are just they will take up any stick they can to beat zoe quinn with because since day one the the goal has been to destroy her and people like her um, and we we've heard a lot about me and me and Mark kind of uh, talking about this, but but what what is your take on this horrible fucking situation? There's not really a lot good to say. Um, it sucks that this guy abused people, and it sucks that he's now dead. Um, so obviously talented creative guy obviously had his fair share of problems and messed up quite a few people's lives along the way but no one deserves to die if anything rather he'd sort of faced through this situation which kind of a lot of people have had to deal with as a as a result of the consequences of, of their shitty actions and learn from it and you know, try and try and work his way back in. So it's it's tough that that he took the out on that. And uh, yeah, there's there's really nothing more you can say. Um, and just to ignore what anyone is saying <laughs> in a negative point of view, or if they're trying to go into business for themselves and trying to make this about something which it isn't. What it is about is it's about victims of abuse and about uh, loss of life, which. It's far more interesting than someone trying to rail someone out just because they don't like what they do with the rest of their life on Twitter. So, yeah, mm. fuck it all, basically. Yeah. Sadly, this probably won't be the last we talk about this kind of story, so we'll put a pin in it for now and come back to it later. Um, next up, Chucklefish has responded to allegations that it exploited Starbound volunteers. So, Mark, this was a story about how when Starbound was being made, um they employed uh to a to an extent uh, a lot of young people in their group chats and whatever to create assets design stuff for them and now these people are coming out and saying well basically we put like a couple of years and a couple of hundred hours work into designing things for this game it didn't get paid a red fucking cent um 
the chucklefish have responded with what I would consider in no uncertain terms a fairly mealy mouth response to this. It tends to be like a lot of companies are going along that party line that I feel um, the kind of like we talked about the hit record Joe Gordon Levitt thing about how oh, we're giving them the opportunity and stuff like that. The part of the response from chucklefish was, well, we didn't make them spend all that time doing it you know it, it kind of it, it doesn't really wash hugely with me what do you think it's, it's just ridiculous i you, you have different versions of this or whether you have um you know hiring people as freelancers or you have, you have the big thing over here and <laughs> doom 64 is coming to switch <laughs> Sorry, there's a Nintendo Direct on live as we're recording this. Sorry, I didn't want to cut across you, but just boy, like, you, you. What is Pete Hines talking about? And then I just saw Doom sixty four and nearly died. Well, thank you for throwing me off my game there, as I was about to go into a big uh, rant here about contracts and, and... Yeah, well, labor solidarity. You got, yeah. you got it. You got my attention. Um, like, I mean, you look at uh, you look at the. Uh, I realized I don't even have this as one of the stories this week. The whole thing with uh, Telltale. Um, being brought up and like all yeah. those projects going to be worked on. Frankenstein's monster yeah. situation. And it's like, okay, yeah, so we're going to hire back a whole bunch of people that were working on this previously, but they're going to be in like freelance roles and they're not going to be given any kind of job security. <laughs> and it's just, it's just, it's a, it's an industry wide issue. And I would have liked to have thought that the more that these stories have been coming out, they've been coming out thick and fast over the last uh, three, four years, but there doesn't seem to be any slowdown of these issues uh, happening or of um, steps being taken to avoid doing this. Maybe in the next couple of years, maybe it will become less and less, but um, I get, you know, giving people an opportunity to work and stuff and i that's what the fucking modding scene is you don't actually have like actual proper stuff that is officially released uh being done by anyone who isn't being um you know paid properly for their work uh so it's yeah it's disgusting and i doubt anything will come of it unfortunately a spirit mark yeah i know <laughs> i know um What's this next story, Mark? This is the one I didn't have time to have a read about. It was news to me when you threw it in the notes. Uh, oh, Peggy has had to yeah. come out uh, and talk about NBA 2K20. Okay, uh, so did either of you see the trailer for the new NBA 2K game? Yeah, this is the one with the literal slot machines. This is the one with the literal slot machines, yes. Uh, so, yeah, for anyone that doesn't know, uh, yeah, they had the new NBA 2K uh, trailer. It was horrendous. Um, it was as, like corporately focused on um you know having influences and shock reactions and all that kind of bollocks that's just uh it's it's the kind of stuff that i would fully expect to see in a devolver digital press conference at e3 next year uh taking the piss out of it um but from eurogamer the european video game age rating organization peggy has said it's very aware that NBA 2K20 may get too close for comfort to teaching players about gambling after it received a complaint about a controversial casino trailer. Uh, so as early, mentioned earlier this week, uh, Publisher 2K released a trailer for the new game on YouTube and it highlighted casino-style elements in the game such as a slot machine minigame and a Wheel of Fortune minigame. Uh, these are all you know, in relation to the, the loot box system and 
Uh, I think I'm guessing whatever the equivalent of the Ultimate Team in FIFA, the NBA version of that looks to be in case in place. Um, and obviously over the last couple of years, we've had a lot of discussion about uh, stuff like loot boxes and you know what is considered gambling in video games. And we've seen the likes of Belgium clamp down on loot boxes. Uh, that discussion has gone, um, there was discussion in the UK about it and watching EA try to squirm the way out of that was hilarious. And uh, yeah, uh, adding fuel to the fire, critics pointed out that these casino-style games are included in a Peggy 3 video game targeted at children as well as adults. Uh, yesterday, an email from Peggy addressed a, a complaint about this. Uh, it hit Reddit, and uh, Eurogamer has verified that this email was legitimate. The response in full basically says, uh, we've seen this, uh, we've noticed the controversy, uh, we thought it was important to carefully explain when certain content is triggering the gambling descriptor in the Peggy uh, system, uh, but also to show when it does not at this moment. A video game gets the gambling content descriptor if it contains moving images that encourage and or teach the use of games to uh, ch the use of games of chance that are played carried out as a traditional means of gambling. Uh, for example, this will include games that teach the player how to play card games that are usually played for money or how to play the odds in horse racing. It is important to stress that the controversial imagery played a central role in the trailer, but it may not necessarily do, the so, do so in the game, which has not yet been released. At this point in time, Peggy can only comment on the trailer that has been made publicly available. So uh, there's a whole bunch more, but yeah, basically when this game comes out, uh, I would be very curious to see if this slot machine uh, imagery is here by the time that uh, it's out. So Man. yeah, what do you think? I was actually just going to shoot straight to Jack instead because as a you know I've kind of with Ultimate Team and stuff like that given my uh, my takes here and there on 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 loot boxing and stuff in uh, in in sports games. But Jack, as a as a huge sports fan yourself and as somebody who uh, is no stranger to how closely actual sports and gambling align with each other, how uneasy does it make you feel? How pervasive these uh, gambling mechanics have become in sports video games to the extent now where there are legit slot machines and before i get that answer for you nintendo have just announced a super nintendo online uh, as part of the nintendo online subscription about fucking time including f-zero link to the past mario world star fox stunt race fx <laughs> wow Anyway, yes, Jack, slot machines, uh, the, the pervasiveness of uh, gambling mechanics in our sports games. Uh, yeah, I don't think anyone has a good opinion on this, do they? I mean, so, well, 2K, you know. 2K. Yeah, I mean, people that aren't standing to make billions and billions of dollars from people, uh, it just seems, a, yeah, it makes me feel dirty. That's probably the best way to say it, Dave. And not in yeah. a good way. Um, I just... It's unnecessary, isn't it? Like, the loot box thing, it's awful. But then to just take it to its next logical step and just basically make it look like a slot machine... It's like video game companies are trying to enforce legislation on themselves. Because if they do it like this... I mean, you think about previously all of the things that oh, would be man. like a wireless snes joy cons sorry <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> good to see you i nearly <laughs> fucking passed out trying to keep that one in 
all your trousers gone at this yeah. point. Oh, fairly gone. Also, best thing in the whole list of games, no Earthbound, lol. <laughs> oh, wow. Super <laughs> tennis, though. Good stuff. That's good stuff right there. Um, yeah, fuck gambling mechanics and video games forever, right? Yeah. Uh, that's bad. to sum it up. There's no, there's no artistic point that needs to be made. It's just, this just a horrible necessity of of what modern games have, have become, really, which is so sad. Especially when you throw down like a hefty sum for a for a brand new NBA game, you're probably paying like full retail for that, and then there's further things that you can just pour your money into shamelessly. As just... to, to paraphrase what Darrow Brian once said, it's like video games are the only art form available that gate off other parts of the game from you based on sometimes how bad you are at the game or in these cases, how much money you're willing to spend. Um, I remember it, his rant about Gears of War um, <laughs> and not being able to beat that charging boss on Gears of War. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it sucks. Like it, it really feels like such a long fucking time since you used to pay your $60 for a game. And that was the whole fucking game, you know? And even we kind of, I guess like we, we've all between us enjoyed some DLC, the odd time. Um, and maybe it was first they came for the DLC and we said nothing and now we're here, you know? Um, who fucking knows? But uh, speaking of, as you say, the, the trap. By the way, I've got to say, this is fucking depressing and dark news. The last two things you want to comment on are like basically gambling being enforced for children and, and like dead people and victims of abuse. Yeah. yeah. Well, the next well, story is going to at least we're taking a, a hard left turn now, Jack. Uh, because we're going to get into Mark's inevitable 2019 game of the year, Untitled Goose Game, is finally coming out. Okay, so I know myself and Dave, I know we have discussed this game. Jack, have you ever seen anything to do with this game before? I mean, is it actually called Untitled Goose Game? Yes. Yes. I have literally no concept of what this is, aside from clearly it features a goose. You basically play a honking goose who's a bollocks. (laughs) There's there's really nothing more to it than that. Uh, So it's Goat Simulator, but a goose, basically. It reminds me a lot of Octodad, but a goose. Oh, right. So you are just a complete jerk. Yeah, that's what it seems like. <laughs> to give okay. it to give it its full details from Eurogamer, you play as a sociopathic goose, uh, as if there's any <laughs> other kind. It's gone from a bollocks to a sociopath. <laughs> that's a big jump. Uh, it'll be released. Jack, Jack has had quite the learning experience in this show between Ghost Panther and sociopathic goose. <laughs> Yeah, which, by the way, back to Ghost Panther. Which, by the way, which one is more likely to be the name of my metal band? Oh, it's definitely Ghost Panther. I don't know. Sociopathic Goose is. Uh, I don't know. Untitled Goose Project is a pretty good. Untitled Goose Game. I think. I think Sociopathic uh, Goose is your post-rock album. Do you know what? Post-rock bands always seem to have like band names that sound like metal bands anyway, so that is perfect. Honestly, I think Sociopathic Goose is the kind of name you'd have as a metal band when you're about 16, making your first metal band for the first time. But If, yeah. I, if I told you, like, this will destroy you, explosions in the sky, uh, up seat, down seat, left seat, right seat, ABC, and start were the names of post-rock bands, you'd be like, what? Well, yeah. Moving on as we just got massively sidetracked there. Uh, developed by the uh, fabulously named House House. 
Uh, Untitled Goose Game is, believe it or not. There, I'll tell you what, these fuckers are great at naming shit. Yeah. <laughs> so good, they named it twice. twice. Uh, believe it or not. House making Untitled Goose Game. It's a stealth game uh, with sort of a sandboxy affair, giving players a range of uh, goose-related abilities, including honking and flapping, <laughs> which can be used to solve a variety of objectives. Is the best sentence you've said in years. <laughs> uh, I didn't write this. Uh, it'll be released on Switch and PC on the 20th of September. Uh, Same date as fucking Link's Awakening. <laughs> I don't know which one I'm going to play first. But uh, apparently, I'm playing first. From some gameplay footage, you can harass honk, a gardener, authorities uh, rake in a lake, <laughs> steal carrots. Uh, yeah, I, I'm definitely going to be picking this one up. Oh, I'm so happy hell. now. This is completely the exact... You've positioned these two stories expertly, Mark. Um, and our final news story of the week, speaking of feel-good moments, you know when that book, The Secret, came out about 12 years ago, and it was the whole idea of, like, you know, you visualize something hard enough for consistently long enough, and you can manifest it into real life. Well, no truer an example of that is there in this week's news than the fact that motherfucking give, put your best uh, Josie Scott from Saliva yeah, on because Big Dave is coming to Gears of War. <laughs> that is amazing. Oh, by the way, Jedi Knight 2 coming to Switch. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we need to say much about it, but uh, yeah, Batista and, in Gears of War. And I, he's wearing the Big Dave Batista sunglasses in the game. Yes, I mean... <sighs> If we can somehow channel 2010 Batista into Gears of War 5. He's uh, wearing the, the double denim over the big bulky suit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My, my about... favorite was the, like, he wear, like, a leather vest with no shirt underneath and, like, one of those peaky blinder hats with some sunglasses. It's a shame he's got the nose ring as well. Fabulous man, it must be said. Love Big Dave. <laughs> I love the awkwardness of uh, him being asked, oh, where did you get all these, like, douchey clothes from? And him just going, like, oh, that's that's just my stuff that I wear. <laughs> Honestly, now, like, how could they not eventually get to the him and Terry Crews having the Gears of War movie? Because that's what the world wants. <laughs> hey, Devil May Cry 2 is also coming to Switch. Honestly surprised that we never did, haven't up to this point got uh, a Gears of War uh, film. Yeah, it seems like one of those that would have been an absolutely nailed on for when Xbox was really trying hard at the though, TV thing. Though considering forward like, onto dawn and stuff, considering the absolute headache and nightmare that is the uh, ongoing um, Uncharted film, uh, which is through about five directors at this point, uh, maybe Microsoft are thinking it's probably not worth it. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, yeah, that's going to do it for, for the news this week. Um, at this point, we're going to head into the book club, uh, which is usually the feature where we just talk about a random game from the past that you should play again if it's been a while or play for the first time if you never have before. Uh, but this week, uh, from the, the, the brainchild of Mark Robinson, uh, we are kicking off Final Fantasy Month to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Final Fantasy VIII's release. Uh, we're going to be talking about a Final Fantasy game every single week in September on this program. This week is no exception as we have gotten on the phone. We've called in the big guns. Jack couldn't do this alone as the resident Final Fantasy expert. So we have called walking meme and emoji expert Keith Brony in. And he's going to talk to Jack and sort of me and Mark as well in the background about Final Fantasy X.
Final Fantasy X is a role-playing video game developed and published by Square as the 10th entry in the Final Fantasy series. Originally released in 2001 for Sony's PlayStation 2, the game was re-released as Final Fantasy X X2 HD Remaster for the PlayStation 3 and PlayStation Vita in 2013, PlayStation 4 in 2015, Microsoft Windows in 2016, and for Nintendo Switch and Xbox One in 2019. The game marks the Final Fantasy series transitioning from entirely pre-rendered backdrops to fully three-dimensional areas, and is also the first in the series to feature voice acting. Final Fantasy X replaces the active time battle system with the conditional turn-based battle system and uses a new leveling system called the Sphere Grid. To give a to give a brief idea of the story, set in the fantasy world of Spira, a setting setting influenced setting influenced by the South Pacific, Thailand, and Japan, the game story revolves around a group of adventurers and their quest to defeat a rampaging monster known as Sin. The player character is Titus, a star athlete in the fictional spirit of Blitzball, who finds himself in the world. Spira, of his home city of Zanarkand, is destroyed Zanarkand. by Sin. Sure, Jack should let you do this. All right, let's go, um, Jack. Well, let's start with obviously who we have here to talk about uh, Final Fantasy X as our first of a number of special guests over the month of September. Uh, Dave Ryan. Some of you may know him as (laughs) as, uh, the emoji guy. We know him as good friend of the show, Keith Brony. Keith, welcome. It's a great to be here, Mark. Uh, I wasn't really sure if I should jump in and say Spira and Zanarkin, since I hadn't been announced as a, a you know, guest contributor just yet, but your Jack just went in straight there for the kill. Spira and Zanarkin. It's all right. He'll always take a chance to correct me on uh, my mispronunciations, which I, I just fairness, didn't want you to get tweeted by a bunch of rabid Final Fantasy Do you know fans. what? Do you know it what? It would have been just the two of you tweeting them. <laughs> I, if that's the thing that makes me become Twitter famous, I'll take it at this point. Yeah, um, take some tips from the chief there. Yeah, I know, right? Dude, the tweet's already in my draft complaining about your pronunciations. <laughs> okay, so for me, and, for, for me and Dave, who really know this game only as that game that has Blitzball, uh, Jack and Brony, I am going to pass this one over to you two and, uh, and tell me what exactly it is about Final Fantasy X that... Um, because when people think about Final Fantasy, usually the ones that come to mind straight away are, well, 7 is the one that obviously comes to mind straight away. Um, but Final Fantasy X is, is a, a pretty pivotal moment in the series. Uh, one, because it is the first release for the PlayStation 2. And even though the, uh, the trilogy of Final Fantasy games on the PlayStation, or uh, well, the 3D ones, because obviously the Final Fantasy VI was on the PS as well, PS1 as well. Um, but, you know, there was a significant jump in the the graphical quality of you know the in-game product and the the cutscenes as well but it was the the transition where we there were still the pre-rendered cutscenes but we've gone from that into more three-dimensional areas um just how pivotal moment uh is this game in the series and i'll I'll let keith brony start because he's the guest to me, and I, I am very, very biased, uh, and I can explain why in a second, but to me, Final Fantasy X is a Stone Cold classic game. I think it is hugely, hugely influential, even in the context of the Final Fantasy series. Of course, as you said, Mark, when you say Final Fantasy, most people think of Final Fantasy VII. Um, but to me, ten just needs to be a part of that top tier conversation as well. As you said, it was the first with a, a kind of fully realized 
3D depiction of the characters that had some sense of realism. Uh, Nine, of course, was quite good in terms of graphical fidelity for the day, but they did kind of pursue a more cartoonish portrayal. Ten combined with its more realistic graphical uh, appearance and its voice acting, which, I mean, I know has gotten some mixed reviews. I personally think it's incredible, including that infamous laughing scene. And we could talk about more about that if we want a little bit later. But personally, I think Final Fantasy X, Stone Cold Classic, uh, uh, consider kind of a uh, the, the first uh, Final Fantasy to really take and the series into its more kind of contemporary space, and that has has had its ups and its downs. But to me, Final Fantasy X is just a huge up, incredible game. Jack, what do you think is um, the the real thing that um, you know springboards this from what had come before with the, the last three games from the PlayStation One to the PlayStation Two? I feel like um, Final Fantasy at this point every single game that was coming out was a creative like right turn so like not 180 degrees but just a, a right turn so you know if you if you would think about seven eight and nine seven was kind of going into that sort of it had the classic final fantasy tropes but it also had this sort of futuristic uh world and everything was kind of based around machines and you know the sort of law of industry like crushing you know the natural world Final Fantasy VIII was just a love story, really, and and probably the most contemporary setting or sort of most realistic feel for for what the characters were kind of going through in a very sort of heavily influenced by like the Japanese um, animes and mangas around at the time. Nine was just a return, a classic return to form of like the old sort of sprites and stuff, and like a, a sort of real sort of folksy kind of tale that it was. And then 10 just took elements from all three of those games to make t- what I think is probably one of the most near perfect Final Fantasy games. Um, and, I, and that's not even in kind of like just an opinion. I just think in terms of all the elements that it brings together, because it has a sort of futuristic tech element from final fantasy 7 it has a central love story that actually really means something for final fantasy 8 and you get all of the classic final fantasy feels here with like the aeons and the magic and the summons being central to the game and it's a return of temples as well which i think is kind of like a a, a massive deal too and going through those to get your summons so it incorporates all of those whilst looking like incredibly upscaled and fantastic if you you know the 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 departure in graphics from from playstation to playstation 2 it just went up an entire notch the voice acting is cool it 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 makes you really have the feel for what the characters are 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 kind of trying to convey when you see what they're saying and it the soundtrack it's still nobu amatsu and it still rips like fucking hell like the first scene of the game um, and we can move on like this is a nice segue but I, i'm sure Bruno will agree that like the first main scene of the game you see like a futuristic city uh and this game of blitzball which you really don't know anything about 
played out in an FMV with like a really sort of Ramstein-esque metal song by Nobu Uematsu showing that there are a lot of strings to that man's bow and then a giant monster appears and destroys the whole fucking city and that's the first five minutes of the game and I don't know about you Bruni but my head exploded the first time I saw that I I still get goosebumps and I'll tell you when when YouTube first began to guess uh, you know gain popularity you know the late 2000s and you started to get a lot of kind of just clips of games and all sorts of everything put on youtube that opening was one of the first things i looked for because i couldn't uh couldn't wait to be able to access it without having to boot up the game and hit yeah. the new game just to see it again. and to this day um i recently actually got the remastered version of 10 and 10 2 on the switch which i've been playing through at a much more slow pace than my original two runs at final fantasy 10 from back in the day when i i got it myself when it was released in europe in 2002 but uh still goosebumps just incredible and even the um the scene that kind of um kind of pre uh, it goes before the, the kind of opening menu the kind of framing device where you have the group of characters gathered together outside the city of Zanark and the two Zanarkin theme plays and that oh. incredible, incredible piano theme. And yeah. How that ties the framing device for I'd say a good 80% of the narrative is a great yeah. hook, but also just so emotive for me still to this day. When I hear that piano theme, Brony, it just like tears start welling up in my eyes. I can't explain it. It's just there's something about it. It just the notation and the sort of naked simplicity of it. Like a lot of what Nobuo Matsu have been doing previous to this with his Final Fantasy music, he's been making these big orchestral scores, and this was just like the stripped back bare elements. Just and it's it's perfect. Like it's a perfect intro to to what is a really like emotional story in terms of the way that you tie your understanding of the game to the central character of the game Tidus who's like really for a vast the vast majority of it still trying to understand his own identity what's happening around him and just has this real cognitive dissonance from like the the rest of the spirits that that tend to be around him and I think using that as a as a narrative as a framing device for the game is something really clever because then you immediately cling on to this guy who's like what the hell is going on here because that's kind of how you feel at the start right uh, absolutely and again uh, the, the the whole narrative of the game i think personally is just incredible and um, it has gotten criticism in, in some kind of spaces because of how linear the narrative is. I mean, unlike so many other Final Fantasy games, you actually don't get any access to a world map per se. And it's not until very, very late in the game that you are able to kind of just jump fast travel around various locations. But because of that linearity, you spend more time with characters in a way that you know that these little great character moments aren't just hidden away um in particular kind of conditional spaces um you really kind of follow this very linear um narrative and throughout that narrative the, the story itself is is beautiful it's simple but it's beautiful and the characters are just i think so compelling everyone's got their own motivations and of course 
um, for so much of the narrative, uh, as I'm actually, I only really remember this, began to replay the, uh, the remaster on the Switch. For so much of the narrative, um, the main character Titus is kind of, you know, obviously unaware of the the workings of the world of Spira. Everyone, he's uh, gotten too close to the monstrosity sin and has gone a little bit cuckoo crazy. But for so much of the narrative, he's ignorant to the sacrifice that underpins the entire summoner's uh, pilgrimage that Yuna, who obviously he throughout the game begins to fall in love with, and she begins to fall in love with him, uh, is planning to make come the kind of the completion of her pilgrimage. So it's a simple, but so very effective and emotive narrative. And it's just to me playing it again, really still holds up. And again, it, it's propelled by the characters. It's propelled by the, the voice acting. Um, and even that scene, I, alluded to earlier which is kind of infamous in some circles where we have titus and yuna laughing on that balcony and it's generally kind of seen as a, a clip to show to people and go look never pay never play jrpgs they're stupid the characters are are just hollow stupid um stereotypes or pastiches um that moment when you play the game in context and you hear that laugh these are two characters who are forcing themselves to have this really fake moment of laughter one because he doesn't quite understand his place in this new world and has just found out something horrifying about his father the other um laughing or trying to laugh as hard as she can in spite of the fact that she's going to make the ultimate sacrifice if she happens to live her life's dream so even that much maligned scene is so beautiful in the context of the wider narrative yeah, I completely agree um, regarding that scene. Like, it's one of those things where if you clip it out, you could just put the, uh, like, L Larry David-style music over the top of it, and it just really <laughs> make no sense whatsoever. But you, it's, it's perfectly summed up by what you said. And it's not just the fact that Yuna is, like, on her way to make this ultimate sacrifice as a summoner to, to bring the final summon and, and, and sort of rid the world of sin for only 10 years as well, but... Just to bring 10 years of peace, she's willing to die, which is pretty fucking heavy. But it's the fact that as a summoner, she is just constantly surrounded by death. Like all the way through the game up to that point, anytime people die or anything like happens that's dramatic and people need to be sent kind of onto the next plane, she has to perform this like weird ritual. And like it's even commented upon by Titus, like every time people die, Yuna has to dance and do this this thing to send people away. So she's constantly surrounded by death. He doesn't really know who he is, where he came from, or why he's there. And it's just two people trying very hard to understand any sort of joy, uh, even if they have to create it themselves in a sort of fake way. And that is a lot of what the game is. It it's kind of like everything you see, which it, it, pardon the pun here is a little bit spurious for Titus because like ultimately you find out that he's not even from like a real stable plane. Like he, the, his reality was like a dream world created thousands of years ago when his original city was completely destroyed in this big war. Um, and, and he's only brought there by, um, by, by Jet. Um, and by Auron as a sort of way to give him a, a life, despite the fact that he hates his father. It's his father who ended up trying to to give him a chance at, at the same sort of life that he had, um, which is pretty fucking heavy, man. 
It is, like, and that's another a big theme for both Titus and Yuna throughout the the whole game is that kind of trying to step out of the shadows of their father. And in a way, obviously Titus grows up hating Jack, and of course the the final narrative um, narrative conclusion is that Titus has to face down against his father, who has effectively become. The, the devil of this universe, this um, the Spira, a thousand years in the future. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, it, it, to a lesser extent, I mean, Yuna has a good relationship with her father, Braska, clearly, but he gave his life to destroy Sin for 10 years, and she's deciding that she wants to follow in his footsteps, but still lay down her own life um, in that way. And, and to touch on something you said uh, earlier, Jack, I mean, it, Yuna is followed by death. And I mean, a lot of people comment on the the tone of 10 being very, very somber. And it is, but this is something that's kind of touched upon, but not really uh, focused on a lot because it perhaps would have been too grim. But the, the whole reason that she has to send the, um, the pyreflies after people are killed is because if the pyreflies continue to exist, they'll become the fiends, the monsters that threat the game you encounter in, in random encounters. So the world of spirit is horrifying. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a lot like um, the sort of White Walkers, Game of Thrones kind of thing, isn't it? Where, like, you have to burn your dead or they'll become possessed, and it's the same thing here. Like, the spirit of people ends up becoming these, these fiends, which is terrifying. Like, a really terrifying sci-fi type thing. Like, anytime you see a Cyberman in Doctor Who or something like that, when you find that out in the game, I don't know about you, Brony, but like every time a, a random encounter happened, I was like, oh, that was probably just a guy. <laughs> now it's a hideous <laughs> creature. <laughs> do I feel bad? I don't want to slay Dave. What did Dave yeah. ever do to anybody? How does the the look and feel of uh, Spira um, compare to some of the games prior? Because again, as mentioned, uh, it's influenced by you know the South Pacific, Thailand, and Japan, and and up until this point with the, the 3D Final Fantasy games, and even if you want to include Final Fantasy VI, you had a, like steampunk settings, you had a kind of futuristic, almost cyberpunk setting at points with um, Final Fantasy VII, and then back to the more medieval uh, elements of Final Fantasy IX. I don't know what I think about Final Fantasy VIII, so we'll wait until we get to that one. How do you feel that um, the the... the, the design the artistic design they went for with 10 kind of fits into the story and everything you were just discussing there so it's a real kind of left turn because um like i said to start off with you start off in this very futuristic it's like half blade runner but then like half aquatic sort of almost atlantean type futuristic Mm -hmm. city or what you think is futuristic when you actually realize that the world that exists before the world that you currently inhabit was a world where they were using machines and there was like a rapid rise of of industry. And then when you've actually finished with the first bit of the game and you wake up on the shore, you wake up in this sort of South Pacific Caribbean style island and everything that was dark and electronic and you know, very sort of Japanese traditional settings for something like this turns into this it's weird like island paradise and it just it's it's utterly breathtaking that the island that you that you wash up on in the city of Besaid that you first go to because it's just again, it's like a real snap right turn you're just not expecting. And 
I, I really loved a lot of the locations in this game. In particular, like I just pick out some of my favourites and let Brony say, like the ruins of the old old Zanakin and what they've become, like inhabited by these pyreflies and stuff, are beautiful. I love the uh, Guado Salam, which is where uh, the Guado tribe come from and, and where Seymour, you, you first meet like the main antagonist of the game, has a very sort of like almost Swamp Thing meets the Hobbit kind of uh, environmental mashup, which I think is which is a really cool uh, look. And the the very one of the very last locations of the game, the Calm Plains of this very traditional sort of open world looking final fantasy breathtaking sweeping plane that's cool um so yeah i i don't know what what are some of your favorite locations brony and what do you think about the environment uh you know i don't think there's a single location across this entire game i don't like i i mean i love the calm lands that you just alluded to there i love mount gagazet even though it can be a real pain in the neck <laughs> when you're uh, <laughs> play through it especially um, if you haven't leveled kamari right oh my god oh god <laughs> yeah we should really we'll talk about the battle system in a second but uh, one thing that really uh, what you were kind of getting at there earlier mark that really struck me is that yeah the the, the real strong turn about the kind of the locations from going from that like really high-tech uh, atlanta style city into kind of these very caribbean locations and there's so many of them they're so varied it's definitely a huge departure from the usual kind of medieval fantasy kind of game of thrones lord of the rings kind of vibe that um a lot of jrpgs kind of heavily borrow from um but one thing that really just ties it all together is that kind of sense of kind of Eastern spiritualism and, and mysticism in through the kind of Church of Yevon thread at all. And I still, again, we already talked about the music, but the prayer of the fate, or the, rather the hymn of the fate throughout still gives me goosebumps in every, every single um, kind of trials that you go through um just that the world is is really different to everything i think that has been done in final fantasy's main series up until that point and it, it must it, you know despite the, the monstrosity that is seen it's probably the most beautiful post-apocalyptic world i've ever experienced yeah there's a real connection that a lot of the story of the game is kind of aside from a race called the albed uh, a lot of the faith and the people of Spirit and Habit Spirit are very anti-technology. Uh, and they're almost like, because of what happened with the wars thousands of years ago, there's a real attitude of keeping things like very basic and sort of very connected to like a, as rural a route as possible in terms of like fishing villages and even the cities are kind of have an old school stripped back feel and stuff and it's very minimal on the technology that's used and it just kind of there's like a real connection of the people to the land and the whole the spiritualism ties into that quite nicely i think you mentioned uh briefly there a little bit before about the combat systems let's uh, let's talk about that for a little bit um as mentioned this is the game where we go from the uh previously active time battle system to what's called the CTB, the Conditional Turn-Based Battle System. Uh, what are the differences? How does this differ from games that have come before? I would say um, 
this game kind of more than the other Final Fantasy that I've played up to this point encourages you to think strategically more. In your top right-hand corner, you've got a very clear um, order of, of turns in the battle. So you can see your characters and when the enemy or the boss that you're fighting are due next to go. So if you think to yourself, right, I've got two moves before the boss or the, or the enemy that I'm fighting is going to go. So if I need to heal, I know I can heal on this turn and the next turn I can attack and then I'll deal with whatever happens with the enemy. So it actually encourages you in a way to plan ahead a lot more instead of just sort of reacting in time to, to what's going on with the, with the monster or the, or the fiend that you're fighting. It just makes you think a little bit more strategically. Would you agree with that, Bernie? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the fact that you can see the order of attacks straight away for every single battle for the game uh, really makes you play in a different way to other Final Fantasy games, where if you just have the active battle system where you're seeing, you know, your characters attack our movement gauge kind of fill up and then you can just spam an attack really quick. Yes, that's very, very fast paced. But with this uh, conditional battle system, you really are encouraged to think, well, if I heal now and if I do this particular type of move, which will delay the enemy's attack slightly, I'm then going to be able to allow one of my other characters to attack or and this is a feature that was i believe brand new to final fantasy at this stage or swap out one of those characters for one of the other characters that i happen to have in my party at that time so you're battling with three characters at any one time but you have access to the entire rest of your party um, and able to swap them around very quickly and it also leads characters up front even in an area where you know there's a lot of enemies that your slower characters need to be used to deal with, because then you could swap out your fastest character will have started the um, the movement chain for one of those slower characters that with the move that you need. So Lulu and her, her black magic could be able to take out at least one of the, the magic-based enemies up front because you're able to just, you know, play the game, <laughs> no pun intended, with the uh, conditional battle system. And I found that very, very enjoyable. Another huge departure, just that's really worth noting, we kind of alluded to it earlier, is that the Aeons, the summons in this game, unlike in previous Final Fantasies, don't just get used, come in and do this massive magical attack. They actually become your primary attacking character. So you summon the Aeon Ifrit, he, you know, almost kind of like a Pokemon, Ifrit Go, will become <laughs> your attacking character uh, for the duration of the battle or up until they get uh, defeated and, and their health points go to zero and then you go back to your, your set of three characters. Yeah, so I, I, I thought that was really cool. Battle. Yeah, it, it just, it makes so much sense um, to have the characters there. And of course, it's it's so well executed because, of course, this is a massive part of the narrative um, as well as that. Yeah, I, um, I like the fact that as well, like the final and best kind of summon in the game is the Magus Sisters. Um, and when you summon them, they just basically replace the three members of your party with with three other uh, people that you can then guide and, and they can sort of team up to do this ultimate move and this ultimate limit break. And and the good thing about your Aeons is they tend to get a lot more moves in as well. And they also will take pressure off. So if you can summon an Aeon, they will take uh, they'll take a few hits for you, maybe even sacrificing the Aeon in the sense to uh, make sure that you're not 
absorbing too many too many heavy hits from an enemy and then just maybe freeing up a few more turns and stuff like that yeah absolutely in the the battle um, gauge or the order of attacks that your enemy has been charging something up and they're going to hit it in, in two moves and you've got yuna there ready to summon in advance of that attack you can sometimes throw out poor valifor to take the hit <laughs> it usually <laughs> is valifor as well right <laughs> well first day on First in the door, first out, I guess. First out the Valor 4, yeah. All right, let's uh, round this up with uh, the last hot topic of this game, and that is Blitzball. Uh, I feel like we have slightly uh, contentious opinions between the two of you on this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it to Jack first. Um, Blitzball, talk to me. So the first time you see Blitzball, as I mentioned, is in that first cutscene, and it looks awesome. They make it look really cool. You know, you're moving around this giant sphere and throwing balls. It's basically like water polo, but like times infinity kind of thing. It, it, it just, it's a really cool visual. The actual game of Blitzball maybe isn't too different to some of the other Final Fantasy mini games in the sense that really what it is is essentially maths. So, you know, you're you sort of you get control of your character and you can swim around the sphere and then if you are tracked down by another player on another team you know you've got stats and if if their tackle stat is below your your breaking stat then you can get through the tackle without them without them hurting you or without them taking the ball from you or you can shoot and then whatever their block stat is will take a, a few points off your off your shot and as and then and then when it gets to the keeper it's how much um how many points have you got left on it will it go in will the keeper save it and stuff like that so like once you understand how it works and stuff it, it can be quite fun to uh, go around the different parts of spear and recruit different players to your blitzball team because the original team you get zanuck and dabes are you know they are absolutely terrible uh, <laughs> on purpose the macclesfield of the blitzball world um, but then you know you, you either train those guys up and some of them are decent to train up or you just go and recruit other players from around and it's fun you know you can play it in the spheres it's a mini game it's pretty harmless it's nothing to get particularly annoyed about is it the best final fantasy mini game no is it the worst it's far from the worst as well and and i quite like a bit of blitzball yeah i mean it's definitely far from the worst final fantasy mini game without a shadow of a doubt, but it's definitely one of the more <laughs> prominently as like a very part of the the narrative, of course, when you get to Luca. And I don't know. When I played it in, in, in my initial runs, and I had back in the day two 200 hour plus saves for Final Fantasy X on my PS, uh, PS2 because I was uh, I realized far too late that I needed one part of Titus's legendary weapon kind of, um, kind of items required to make it. And I, I went back to get it in the location. It was far too late. And there was a hidden dark Aeon boss that instantly dealt maximum damage to me. So that was me going, well, I, I could either sink another 200 hours into this save and not get the item, and then finally maybe get the item, or I can just start again. <laughs> I started again. But 
in both of those uh, runs through, I really enjoyed Blitzball. I played it loads. I really, really enjoyed it. But uh, doing it again now in, in 2019 in the remastered version, having played the couple of games that you have to play, I've honestly had no interest in going back to play it again um, at all. I think, I don't know, it, it strikes me as a game that is fun when you're kind of looking at your your afternoon, especially when you're younger and going, well, you know, I know what I'm doing all day today. I'm going to play a little bit of football. And I know a couple of people who, who very, very fondly remember Final Fantasy X. And sometimes um, to this day will try find their save and just play a bit of blitzball which i struck me as very very bizarre but there is people out there that do that but to me in playing it again i'm kind of like i want to play final fantasy 10 and games of blitzball can you can you could easily sink a couple hours into those and you'd be like have i gotten further to the final summon have i gotten further or closer to unaleska or jackerson to me it's like it's a fine mini game but I think it can be pleasantly ignored should you not kind of want to engage with it. Yeah, that's that's the key point, isn't it? That you don't have to actually play it. I mean, in terms of uh, getting getting the slots for Whacker's final <laughs> limit break, you especially get that the, from... Especially the, that attack reel, which becomes invaluable when you've got a super powered up walker and you're able to hit i can't even remember how many the maximum hits is but yeah about a billion (laughs) it's a lot yeah (laughs) i I remember back in the day especially and this this is one quick thing i'd say about this game as well although the story is very linear and you can get through it at a a fairly quick pace without too much grinding i don't think there's been to my mind a final fantasy game with as much extra content yes that extra content can be very very repetitive but the amount of hidden bosses extra items the sphere grid leveling system if you want to max it out for everybody it's infinitely more difficult than just getting everyone to say level 100 in a traditional jrpg setup um and you know i just remember that that, that back real move from waka that you have to play bits ball to, to unlock as one of his um his uh, finishing moves um you know that's key to defeating like half those monsters because if you lay on one of those 22 or whatever amount of hits all for maximum damage that's gonna really sting yeah yeah completely agree um so blitz ball mark you can't buy a pass it it's not as rent worthy as jeff gertzman made it sound <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you don't really need to play blitz ball but um if you want to it's there for you one day i will sit you down and i will I will treat you to a game of Blitzball, my friend. Well, at some point, I'm just actually going to hammer through a bunch of these FF games, but they're all on the Switch, so there's not much uh, holding me back. Right, Keith Brony, you're the special guest, so I'm going to leave you to do the uh, elevator pitch for Final Fantasy X. Final Fantasy X is the emergence of a fully realized 3D Final Fantasy game, a beautiful narrative, a beautiful uh, reimagining of a lot of game's um, most core battle mechanics excellently scored um i would just say if you enjoy RPGs and haven't played final fantasy 10 you're missing out on not just an excellent game but a really really paramount moment in the history of jrpgs to me it's an absolute classic all right well on that note 
Um, we will be back shortly to give the, uh, the, the final rundown for the end of the show. Uh, but I just want to say thank you very much, Keith, for coming on. Uh, it's been a, it's your first time on the show, is it not? Have you been on before? I feel like I can't remember now. It, it is my first time, long time listener, first time contributor. So yeah, absolute pleasure, we, especially to talk about one of my, my favorite games. Well, it's We've been a, trying to get Brony on for about a year to do MGS 3 and 4 with us. Uh, at some it stage, was MGS2, was wasn't it? Oh, it was MGS2, yeah, because that's me yeah. and Jack's black spot. Um, no, no, that's not a black spot for me. I love MGS2. <laughs> no, no, I don't mean in terms of love, but I mean in terms of, like, that's the one Brony jumped at that we were kind of, we would talk the least about ourselves, I think. Um, it's so funny to me because it's the one with the most relevance to 2018, 19 uh, fake news, the, mm-hmm, the whole thing. It has aged. But uh, it has it has aged. But it, no, it, I mean, but anything. that's what I mean. I was going to say it's aged so well in terms of oh, themes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely, and in fact, if anything, Kojima's uh, prediction was like nowhere near as bleak as we've reached. <laughs> yeah. But then now, looking at Death Stranding, does that mean in like seventeen years' time, we're all going to be walking around with like weird baby jars inside ourselves? I'm here for it. Yeah, <laughs> gotta be said. Depends um, what kind of blank check Sony wants to send our way. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, before we cut back to us doing the wrap up, uh, Brony, hit us with any plugs that you might have. Uh, people can find me at uh, Keith Brony on Twitter. Uh, and if you happen to have any interest at all in emojis, I would recommend emojipedia.org. It, it is exactly what it sounds like, it is the encyclopedia. Or emojis. So if you're unsure about why someone is sending you a particular uh, little pictographic character in any text message at all, check it out. Emojipedia.org. Check out Emojipedia. Check out Shrug Life on Spotify. We have a new str- uh, single out called Strangers. It's uh, social anxiety, but a bop. That's what one uh, light fan referred to it as. So yeah, check that out. Cool. Brony, thanks for being on the show. It, it took the guts of five years to get you on the show we won't leave it that long again before we do mgs2 with you that would be great david it's been a pleasure guys thank you very much for having me on bye bye thanks brony and yeah we're back thanks to keith brony for showing up on the show it took a long time to get him here we'll make sure to have him back um and i think a successful start gentlemen to uh final fantasy month here at link to the cast um that's going to do it for episode 150 milestone episode of link to the cast um this week and we'll be back next week talking final fantasy again uh in the meantime follow us at link to the cast on twitter go to link to the cast.wordpress.com is the website we post show notes post all the shows things like that um individually uh on the tweet machine i'm at the date dave mark is at lithium project jack is at jack lazel um go around the table mark you got to plug uh no cool <laughs> jack you got on to plug There you have it. There you go. <laughs> you, can't, you can't do better than that. Oh.
fuck me. And then I suppose I'm going to plug my, my other podcast, Days of Thunder. Uh, every two weeks, myself and Lee Malone sit down and watch an old episode of WCW Thunder, if that's your kind of bag. You may be pleasantly surprised to hear a little bit of the bubbly appearing a couple of times on that program this week, unbeknownst to Lee. <laughs> Uh, that episode drops uh, on Thursday of the week you're listening to this, so uh, check it out. Uh, we'll be back next week talking more games, more Final Fantasy, and maybe we'll have a complete rundown of that Nintendo Direct that kept interrupting us in the news segment. Um, yeah, we'll talk to you next week. See you later, guys.